Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of every installment in the Halloween movie series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning. These conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Listener discretion is advised. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween Kills, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, Will Patton, Anthony Michael Hall, directed by David Gordon Green. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Silver Shamrock. And this is Arnie. And in case you guys haven't heard, Evil Dies Tonight. I mean, I don't know if you got that line from this movie, but Evil Dies Tonight. I just want to make sure it's really clear that Evil Dies Tonight. But the funny thing is, I thought he was going to die three years ago. I thought the movie we got in 2018, go listen to that show. We didn't know they were planning a trilogy. David Gordon Green has now let it out of the bag that it was always his design to keep this thing going over three films. And so he won't die tonight in this film. He didn't die last time. I guess Halloween ends. We'll see if they're truthful or not. You gotta like that they closed the last one where it felt definitive where if it had tanked and they never got the green light on the next two, then we weren't left hanging, but they had ideas in mind. Yeah, but when they say they planned a trilogy, did they have the idea that it could be, or did they actually sit down and have story beats for each three movies? Because when you say you plan a trilogy, I'm thinking you have definite ideas, like kind of like Ted Lasso has a has three seasons Oh, I think they do. I think it's clear in this movie. Like, people that were walk-ons that didn't seem to matter last time are like major characters. Well, we have somebody joining us who can probably answer all of these questions. Now playing associate producer and the guy who has Haddonfield's key to the city, Jason. Jason, what happened here? Well, first of all, let me say thank you so much for having me back, guys. I really appreciate it. Sure. So... Let's talk about the road to Halloween Kills real quick. And uh, you mentioned the trilogy idea. I don't know how many people remember, but I, I remember I went back and kind of verified. In the summer of 2018, Danny McBride, who co-wrote this film and the last one, had said that they had thought about doing 2018's Halloween and its sequel back to back. So they hadn't even been talking about a trilogy at that point. But as soon as the movie opened and it made a bundle, that's when they were like, yes, we got Halloween Kills coming out <laughs> 2020. Halloween Ends is coming out in 2021. That announcement actually came the following summer. That came in July 2019, right before they started production on the sequel. And they were supposed to film them back to back, but didn't. 
They said the schedule was too hectic. They just announced yesterday that the script for three is done, quote-unquote, and has gone to John Carpenter for feedback. So it's not like they had the script for two and three ready to even film two and three back-to-back in 2019. This is what I'm talking about. The next movie is not in the can right now. I assumed it was sitting on a shelf somewhere. No, they have to go ahead and start production on that. Uh, I think it starts next year, early next year. I thought they have a release date of next Halloween. Oh, they do. Oh. They do. They can turn it around. Yeah, if they've got the script now, I mean... If they're really ready to roll, they can get it out in a year. They do a Purge movie in far less time. Scream did that for its three movies. But this was all shot in 2019, which I find so strange because I'm looking at so many real-world parallels in this and saying, oh, they're commenting on January 6th. Oh, they're commenting on COVID. Oh, this was filmed two years ago. No, they're predicting where we were going. They knew what we didn't. Uh, Actually, that's what's interesting. Well, the one thing that they did not predict, obviously, was the pandemic. And we had expected this movie to come out last fall. It wasn't until July of last year, July 8th, where they said Halloween Kills would be delayed to 2021. Yeah, everything else was moving like a month, three months, really optimistic. Halloween was like punting. We know something's up. We're not coming out for a year. Well, you can't put the movie out at any other time of the year unless you're Halloween Resurrection and you put it in July, which never made any sense. Neither did that movie. When the movie was delayed, they released a statement that had David Gordon Green and John Carpenter's names on it. And it said that Universal had agreed to do an IMAX presentation of the film. Now, did you guys see any IMAX Halloween Kills screenings in your towns? Because I did not. I tried, but no, there were none available. And I looked like surrounding towns. Like, nope, they did not have it in. It was all James Bond. I saw this in a super DLX theater, Dolby Atmos, but I didn't look for IMAX because I knew it wasn't filmed in IMAX. So I was happy with just the big screen and the big audio of the Super D at Marcus Cinemas because I guess Marcus doesn't do IMAX. But then it's also out on Peacock Plus, so why go to a theater at all? Well, that's what I did. I looked at my local theater and saw that nobody had been pre-ordering tickets for the Thursday or Friday shows. And so I know, like last time you talked about Halloween in 2018, a big issue for me was how much I enjoyed being in a full theater watching a Halloween movie. I was definitely in the right aspect for it. But why go sit in an empty theater with great sound when I have a 65-inch screen here with a pretty good sound bar. I watched it with my wife here on my couch at, uh, on Peacock Plus. Sound bar, Atmos, all the same. <laughs> all the same stuff. All the same stuff. <laughs> I almost did the same thing, Brock, because I looked and there were like seven seats sold for this 200-seat theater where I saw it. And then I guess the Halloween audience just doesn't buy tickets in advance because this theater was pretty full and much scarier than michael myers on screen was the guy sitting literally one seat away from me no mask on hacking up along i swear this movie gave me covid i'm gonna be so pissed (laughs) (laughs) but then i did watch it again because i like to take notes and have a regular viewing experience i had that at the theater took my notes and everything thanks to peacock plus it is just Peacock, people. I know everything else is Plus, but I think... Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's just, I mean, you know, it's just NBC Plus, maybe. How about that? Peacock Premium, maybe. I think I paid money so I didn't have commercials, so I think Peacock Premium is what I got. 
Yeah, I had the dual experience. I wanted to go to the theater because one thing I remembered about 2018 was it was just so much more fun watching the crowd. I felt like in the end that movie was good, but maybe didn't live up to the hype. It wasn't as great as I wanted it to be, but boy, when I was surrounded by people that were hyped up for it, it made it more fun. So there's no way I was going to miss a theatrical presentation. I went on Thursday, and it was, you know, maybe 40, 50 people. It was not full, but there were people there, and they did what horror movie audiences do. They titter and they talk to the screen, so I appreciated that. But I wanted mom to go. You know, that has been an ongoing story in our family is how mom was scared by Michael Myers. And what does she think of this series? I always want to check in with her. She ain't going to theaters very much. And so she did it for James Bond. She wouldn't do it for Michael Myers. She uh, was happy to watch it on streaming. So I've seen this film twice. You know, that's what Universal wants. Moving it to Peacock was, to me, it was a bit, it was controversial in my head. I thought to myself, why Peacock? It's on the lower tier of streaming. It's not, you know, a premium service like Netflix or even HBO Max, something everybody oh, yeah. does. I thought maybe that they this announcement that it was going to do a same-day release came after a couple of things. It came after Shang-Chi opened big, which, you know, I thought, well, movies are back, so why would they move it? And then it also came after its premiere in Venice, where the reviewers were not very kind to it. So a lot of the hot takes on the decision were... Okay, the movie's terrible, so they're they're moving it off to Peacock. That's what they're doing. But I don't think that's the case at all. I was worried too, Jason. I didn't know much about Halloween Kills. It's hard to recreate the hype, right? Like, Jamie Lee Curtis's back was great in 2018. She's back was not expected. I did wonder, was were they just going to, you know, have her die in the back of that pickup? I thought maybe they would continue without her. But knowing that she was coming back, just it, it didn't... It wasn't a big hook. It was like, okay, well, they're going to continue on with something. I didn't know much about this movie. And then when I heard the bad reviews and saw it dumped to Peacock, I just didn't take in any more information. I'm like, eh, I sent something bad here and I'll just, you know, go radio silent. I won't read anything. I won't look at reviews. I'll just go and see how the crowd reacts Thursday. Yeah, I didn't realize how bad the Rotten Tomatoes score was until I watched it on Peacock, where it showed me the Rotten Tomatoes score. I yeah. was completely blind going in to see this in theaters. Yeah, I didn't want to know that other... I, I like to go in these things as much as possible without knowing anything. And I don't like to read reviews before a movie that I'm going to see, or especially when I talk about it with you guys. But when you turn on Peacock... Peacock Plus, Peacock Premium, whatever it's called, it's right there in the bottom corner. You can't escape it. And you have to wonder why they would even bother doing that if they want me to watch a movie or if they have an idea of, you know, we're offering all these products to you. Why would you give me a rating on it? Why just get that rating part off of it <laughs> so I would watch the movie? Why It would kind of turn me away from watching something if it has a bad score, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know why... Peacock does it. I understand why iTunes would do it, because iTunes is going to try to give you the best experience and just wants you to watch something. But if you own this content, the way Peacock is partnered with Universal and everything, you don't ever want to give people the thought that it could be bad ahead of time. That seems right. like a bad choice in design of their interface. But at the same time, I just want to put it out there, horror movie audiences have never cared what the critics thought. I mean, they have always bashed this genre from the first Halloween. And so the core audience, the, the hardcore people, whatever you say, you know, Janet Maslin, don't give enough. But 
what it signals to me is this is not going to be the phenomena of 2018. You know, that movie was so huge. Biggest slasher. So if it wasn't the reviews, I kind of racked my brain to try and figure out what the reasoning was. So I came up with a few reasons, and then I came up with what I think is the is the actual real reason. But let me just kind of throw some of the things out here that I was thinking. I thought to myself, all right, it's a really crowded month. There's a lot of competition. Even though Venom kind of moved off Halloween's date, and if Venom had stayed on Halloween's date, Halloween would be dead. I didn't think that that would happen, but you saw the opening for Venom. I mean, that's crazy. So you have Venom, you have James Bond, you got Dune coming next week. I thought to myself, all right, well, they, they can put it as a same-day release, and they can make up for it by getting some Peacock subs. So the competition was a little intense. I thought maybe the reviews would signal that, okay, we're going to have a little trouble expanding the audience, and I thought that that was another reason why they might have moved it also to Peacock. Because once you get beyond the, the core horror audience, if they're not interested... We know that a lot of adult audience members are still not going back to movie theaters. Maybe that was their problem. Mm -hmm. My mom. Also, I'd like to throw out there, Universal isn't giving this to Peacock for free. There's always some back end. You know, it's all the same overall corporation's money if you're a shareholder. But there's always some back end dealings. And I've got to say, this is the first time in my life I've ever discussed Peacock. So they're doing something right with this move. Sure. If, even if it's a heckle, we're talking about it. No, you're right. And I actually read this, uh, it was a CNBC article, I guess October of 2020, last October, was Peacock's most watched month of all time for their horror and fantasy films. So they know that their audience will actually go. They released a whole list of the movies that they have on Peacock this month for Peacocktober. Mm. <laughs> Them and no one else. No <laughs> one is calling it that. Yeah, that's the one month I'm paying for a subscription, Peacocktober. Yeah, me too. I'm going to probably cancel my subscription. Yeah, I'm going to probably cancel it right after this recording. We're finished recording. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Peacock people don't want to hear us say that, but what they're really banking on is getting more subs. They have 54 million signups, but that doesn't mean that those are paid subscriptions. Now, I'm, I'm always interested in that kind of thing about, you know, which streaming services are on top, which ones have the most subscribers. You know, Netflix has 209 million. It, it's a very big deal. I think that for Universal to try and grow Peacock, doing this was the same move as moving all of the Warner Brothers movies to HBO Max same-day release. Mm -hmm. Jason, based on what you just said, it'd be interesting to see how many people do exactly what Arnie and I are saying we're going to be doing is canceling. We got this subscription service for this movie. We're not going to stick around. And the next time I subscribe to it will be in next year when the sequel comes out. And it costs less to pay for a month of Peacock than I paid for my movie ticket. That's true. And we'll know a little bit more about Peacock. October 28th, the CNBC article said, is when they are going to release their quarterly results. So maybe we'll see the impact of the subscriptions in those those results, or maybe I'll have to wait till the Q4 ones to see. Then you look over to the next quarter to see how many people dropped off after they got done watching Halloween Kills. But the theater's experience is not dead. This is not going to make the 80 million opening that Halloween had in 2018. But I'm hearing 50. I mean, I'm hearing that it's going to do very well. Like, they're, don't worry, this is not a flop. They will have seed money for the next one. That's a really big success, and they should be pleased with that. You know it's a small picture. It only costs $20 million to make. They will make their money back. And if they grow the subs on Peacock, that's what the shareholders care about. So that's, you know, that's a win for them. 
Well, Jason, thanks for bringing us that information. I know you had followed this obsessively since the last movie came out, and we appreciate you bringing us up to speed. I know I've read the wiki article, but you had a lot more knowledge than it. So I take it that you give this a recommend. I do give it a strong recommend. I've been having discussions with people in the Facebook group about it. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you guys have to think, so please take it away. Well, Arnie, I think that's your cue to give the plot, and we can get into Halloween Kills. We pick up right after the first film, Halloween Night 2018. When we left the last film, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, has trapped Michael in the basement of her house and set it on fire. Unfortunately, some good Samaritan firefighters, having no idea who Michael is, try to help him escape the blaze. Michael's way of thanking them is to brutally murder each and every one of them. Lori is taken to the hospital where she undergoes emergency surgery for the knife wound she sustained, and she recovers in the hospital, blissfully unaware that Michael survived. But the police do tell her daughter Karen, played by Judy Greer, and Lori's granddaughter Allison, played by Andy Matichak. Karen stays at the hospital to watch over Lori, but Allison and her boyfriend Cameron join up with a vigilante mob to hunt Michael. The mob is led by Tommy Doyle, the little boy Lori was babysitting on that night 40 years earlier, only now he's being played by Anthony Michael Hall. Also with Tommy is his childhood friend Lonnie, played by Robert Longstreet, little Lindsay, who Lori was also saddled with that night, still being played by Kylie Richards, and Dr. Loomis's old nurse Marion, still played by Nancy Stevens. But Michael is on a homicidal rampage. He kills many townies, and when he comes across Lindsay's car, he kills Marion and two other mob hunters. Back at the hospital, when Lori finds out Michael is alive, she convinces everyone he's coming for her. So Tommy riles up a bigger mob in the emergency room. When a different escapee from the Haddonfield State Hospital arrives, the mob pursues him thinking the short, bald man is Michael Myers. They force him to jump out a window to escape, and he plummets to his death. Michael, however, just wanted to go home, back to the home where he lived as a child. He murders the couple that's living there now, and when Lonnie, Cameron, and Allison show up, Michael kills the two men and sets his sights on Allison. Karen went out in search of her daughter, who was at Michael's house being strangled by the killer, and Karen stabs Michael in the back with a pitchfork and leads him out into the streets where the mob is waiting, with guns, bats, and every type of melee weapon. But despite all their blows, they can't stop Michael. Tommy is killed, as is every other member of the mob. Lori says Michael is something other than human, and he gets stronger with each kill. And he has a lot of kills in this movie, including murdering Karen, as credits roll. So, they're really getting into some Curse of Michael Myers thorn shit here, aren't they? <laughs> Are they? I, I wasn't thinking about that one. I, I don't see Paul Rudd here. They, you know, Anthony Michael Hall said he got a call from Paul Rudd, and Paul Rudd's like, you know, I'm good with you taking over the character, make it your <laughs> own. And Anthony Michael Hall was like, Thanks, I don't really need your blessing, though. I'm going to do my thing. <laughs> no, no, this wasn't your role. <laughs> I heard that the producers went to Paul Rudd and said, do you want the part? And he was doing Ghostbusters or something like that and couldn't do it. And then they all agreed that maybe, I think I read this on Wikipedia, that like he'd be distracting to be there because he's Paul Rudd. He'd also be distracted to be there because they're completely wiping out all the middle installments and he right. was in the curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> Right, yeah. We don't want any linkage to that one, for sure. I don't see them bringing back little Jamie as Lori's other daughter. 
Yeah, but as we all know, they link to other Halloween movies that are not technically in canon anymore in this movie. Mm, only as jokes, winking aside. There is that kind of nod, but there is a little bit of Halloween 2 footage here in some of the flashbacks also. Oh, there is. I did not know that. But yeah, you speak of flashbacks, that's how we're going to begin here. It's weird, though. We don't start in the past. We start in the present, then go to the past, then come back to the present, which I don't know why. Well, I think it's to get my audience tittering. I mentioned that they were vocal. One of the loudest reactions is the opening shot of a boy in drag on his phone trying to call his girlfriend. They didn't remember the whole gender swap Bonnie and Clyde thing. I don't think they remembered this character, Cameron Elam, but it tells me a few things. One... It's more of the same night. This is not taking place on the Halloween a year later. I mean, this guy just got dumped at the dance, and he's trying to call his friend that was just impaled on a fence, and he's walking up to a cop who we saw got stabbed by Dr. Sartain. Right, but I also took it to be, Stuart, that they're not going to get to killing right away, and so they want to give the audience something to see first, and then they're going to go into a whole bunch of plot and exposition and background, we're going to jump into that flashback. So this was a quick way to get people invested quickly with, like, you know, a bloody corpse and things like that, and then get into a little bit of backstory and plotting for the rest of the movie. I also think this movie is about guilt, and starting with Hawkins, who was a character Will Patton was in the last movie, but someone I didn't pay attention to. Like, the fact that it's going to be his memory of Halloween night, 1978, and what he did and didn't do colors this one particularly. It is so interesting to me how they interweave newly shot footage from quote-unquote 1978 in with actual footage of the original and do it in a seamless way. I read that they had to really work to digitally add enough grain to the new stuff to make it fit the old stuff, and they, they do great with this. Yeah, I made a comment to my wife who watched it with me that it's amazing they have all this footage from 1978 from the cutting room floor that they're able to use. And my point of me saying that was it looks really good. You can barely tell that it was not shot in 1978, especially with the the actors and the, their haircuts and things like that. They did a really great job of throwing back. Bravo to the filmmakers there. I actually did that. I did the whole canon retrospective at this point. I went back and watched Halloween 1978. So I remember Lonnie Elam. They got a kid that really looks a lot like he's dressed in the same way. And like when we have this moment where he's wandering around being bullied, like that's another theme of this movie is that people that we associate with, he was the one that was pushing Tommy Doyle around and making him break his pumpkin before he could carve it. They're gonna get you, gonna get you. Now he is being bullied by the twins from the Shining and Chucky. Like that... <laughs> They're called the Mulaney children, but clearly dressed to look like other slasher horror characters. Yeah, the same weekend the Chucky series comes out, too. Uh, kind of interesting there. And I did the same thing as you, Stuart. I rewatched the original Halloween, the 2018 Halloween. I'm really glad I rewatched the 2018 Halloween. I think anybody who comes into this one without good memory of that one will feel a little lost in the characters. And what they're setting up here, like you say, is Hawkins and Michael. They're not going to set up the characters we're going to be primarily focusing on. Except for Lonnie. Just to put it bluntly, 2018 told us it was Jamie Lee Curtis versus Michael Myers. And this movie says, there's a whole town here. There's all of these other people we need to consider. And that's mind expanding. You really do need to go back and look at what we thought were background characters. And so Lonnie, yes, Lonnie sees Michael basically going home. 
he has the purview. If he thought about it, and he will 40 years later, uh, understanding the methods of Michael, he could have been killed by this guy, but Michael was too busy getting away from the cops and heading home to the Myers house. Which is where he would find Hawkins and another cop. And I watched these in order. I had not have time to go back to the first one. Stuart, maybe you can answer how much of this was in the first movie. I mean, Michael Myers did not kill that cop or take him hostage in the first movie. Michael Myers never moved that fast in the first movie. So this is all newly shot stuff with the cop shooting the other cop in the neck by accident trying to hit Michael. Correct. In fact, I don't even see Hawkins in the 1978 movie. Like, maybe he's there. But I don't see him. Like, he's not important. It's This has been inserted so that we can now, again, I mean, that first movie was so underpopulated. We talked about how there didn't even seem to be trick-or-treaters. I'm like, who are these kids out on the street? Because nobody was in that Carpenter movie. Now we're seeing all the people that we didn't. Uh, you know, it was so minimalist in 78. And now this feels like an ensemble. What about... Loomis shouting up the stairs, did Michael kill again? That felt like it was in the first movie. No, no. And, no? and the joy of it. Now, if you remember, the first movie ends not even at the Myers house. It's right. at the house where Lori is babysitting. So right. like this, we didn't see this. If you think about the okay. first movie. Okay. So this is all after the first movie then. After he left Lori's house, he went home. If we're not counting the original Halloween 2, Michael falls out the window, Donald Pleasance unloads his pistol and then says it was the boogeyman, and then we jump to a 2018 movie where he's incarcerated. What happened? This movie is going to tell you how they got him locked up. Okay, I thought that was still middle of the night before he got to Lori that we were seeing. Okay, this. thank you for clearing that up for me. Did they actually do like a Grand Moff Tarkin or Jeff Bridges Tron or something that way with Loomis? Because he looked a little off. I, I thought it was a computer generated or some other actor was on set and they put Donald Pleasance's face on there. I read a little bit about this and that is somebody who looks like him with practical makeup. They didn't CGI. They didn't Grand Moff Tarkin him. But I guess he looked close enough that with the right makeup effects... I was confused, and the fact that I thought it might be archival footage, again, because of the grain, and I had just rewatched Halloween 1, but I didn't watch the TV cut. I know there are a lot of scenes that were filmed for Halloween 1 later and things, so it's a very brief shot of him in close-up. There's another shot of him in the background where I'm like, okay, that's not Donald Pleasance, but that close-up shot was good enough to fool me. I think it's pretty seamless. They have another actor credited as him, and then they have another actor doing the voice. So I think it's a tag team. I think someone could do the impression, and someone's like, I look like him. This movie really surprises me in lots of ways, but starting right here with the fact that we've gone back to 1978, this is the moment that they catch Michael, but it's really not about Michael. This scene is actually more about what's been haunting Hawkins all of this time. He claims that Michael was the problem, but the truth of the matter is, he he was the one that killed his partner. He was green and experienced, maybe not a crack shot. Michael was choking McCabe right by Judas' window, and he took the shot and ended up killing the guy. Now, maybe the guy would have been choked and dead if he did nothing. I don't know what the proper response is, but it's interesting that Michael is secondary to the real pain for Hawkins this night. 
you said maybe a bad shot. He shot after Michael when Michael went down the stairs and couldn't hit him at all. Now, obviously, you know, in the moment, it, maybe he has like he was shaking and he couldn't get a good shot off, but he got no good shots off at all. I thought he was the worst shot. But yeah, I liked that he tried to kill Michael, like you see in all these movies. You know, you try to kill the person behind. What I didn't like about this scene was how long this flashback was and why am I spending so much time here? I didn't feel I understood that for a really long time. So it kind of put me off a little bit of why are we spending so much time with these cops in 1978? Let's get back to modern day. And when we do, they're right there in the back of the truck again. Uh, I just thought it was really, didn't you find it was really weird that it took like, was it 10 minutes in the past here in the beginning? It wasn't like a quick flashback at all. It was like a full like scene. Yeah, the editing of this movie, like I said, the fact that we started in the present and then went to the past and came back, I found odd. And overall, I just think this movie is edited in a way that sometimes makes me scratch my head just a little bit. Some of it, I think, might be MPAA regulations, too, some of these cuts. I'd almost bet money on an unrated cut 4K Blu-ray when it finally comes out. Well, I'm going to just say this movie is plenty violent. I feel like if they cut stuff, they got away with keeping a lot in here. They did. I'm surprised how much is in here. It's incredibly violent, and yet I think they filmed more. I'm sure they did, but I'm if your feeling is, oh, they always neutered these things at MPAA, someone fell asleep on the job. Because this movie's <laughs> got guts and brains and, I mean, just, yeah, Lori on the operating table alone was having me just chills down my spine. Just gross. A lot of grossness happening in this movie. Arnie, you said you said something about the editing. I just want to point out. So they start off at the beginning, right after the first movie, where they give us a little bit of whatever. In the middle, really, of the first movie. Right. Then they do the 1978, that whole scene, like a long scene there. But they go to the bar, introduce all those characters, and then go to introduce Michael at the fire and the back of the truck with Lori. Because they do such a long scene in 1978, they have to basically restart the movie like two or three times because they have to introduce all the people at the bar and then they have to figure out hey, where Lori is and where Michael is. We don't see Lori until like 20 minutes into the movie or something. Mm-hmm. 19. And I found that really, really strange that they kept on starting the movie. And that's all because they chose to do the flashback first instead of doing the flashback later in the movie. But that bar scene, we are introduced to two characters from the last movie. I had to go back and find them. It's like a Where's Waldo. You've got characters that were called Hot Nurse and Hot Doctor in the first one. (laughs) And they become major players here. Same actors who had one line in the last movie getting in their car while kids are trick-or-treating. The guy says, you won't believe it. They were in my pocket the whole time. Now, these are two major players. They must feel like the luckiest actors in L.A. right now. Or there's been a grand design to this that we weren't giving credit. Like the fact that they were always going to make more of these, that David Gordon Green had a plan that he didn't fully reveal in the last movie seems to be in evidence now. I'm now thinking like that guy at the Back to the Future pinball machine is going to like kill Michael in the next movie. Like all of these people (laughs) that seem to not matter do matter. And I love it. I'm hearing you guys saying it feels jarring and strange and, and taking focus away from Lori, that's the point of this movie. That is the shocker of this movie is I couldn't imagine casting Jamie Lee Curtis, bringing her back, and then sticking her in a bed and making a movie about other people. But they have done that, and they have expanded what, I mean, 
Haddonfield suddenly feels like a real thriving town. And that, to me, has given an entirely new energy to this entire franchise. I'd like it if it were done a little bit better in my mind. I've honestly, in the back of my mind while watching this the first time, I'm like, has Jamie Lee Curtis had anything else come out that might have conflicted with her shooting schedule here? When we're in the bar, the fact that if you don't remember the doctor and the nurse from the last movie, it's not going to hurt anything. It's just a nice Easter egg and a nice bit of continuity that they are back, but they can be introduced here as totally new characters, but that Tommy... And Lonnie and Lindsay and Miriam, none of them ever left Haddonfield. And Anthony Michael Hall is going to give on stage and give this, it's a talent night. So of course what you want to do is give a dramatic reading of the most traumatic events of your life. And not even with a bongo to make it beat poetry. It's very, (laughs) very clumsy to me. No, it's brilliant. No, it's not. It's brilliant. This scene. You're telling a story to people in the bar who all remember it. Why is that brilliant? Wow. Who cared about Tommy? Like, and Anthony Michael Hall, who cared about him since Breakfast Club? And he comes roaring into this movie. Obviously, you didn't watch every episode of The Dead Zone during our Stephen King retrospective like I did. <laughs> I did. I, you, you took that bullet. And he in The Dark Knight. He was in The Dark Knight. I mean, come on, Brock. Yeah, he was in there. Did I care? No, I did not. <laughs> But yes, it's such a joy to see him. And yes, I'm getting the feels. When I hear him telling the story, you're right. These are all these people that should have gone on with their lives. It was 40 years ago. Move on. Get out of Haddonfield. This movie is about being stuck in depression and anxiety, PTSD. These are all characters that can't move on. These are all characters that are telling the same story. The bartender even says that. Every Halloween, crying in their beer, here they come. They can't let it go. It's helpful, of course, because it's also telling audiences that maybe didn't see the previous movies what's going on. But I also just think it's a great way to introduce all these characters we forgot about or never paid attention to. I agree with you on that aspect. My wife had not watched the 2018 movie with me before she watched this one. That was very helpful in that sense. It also ties in the fact that the only person we were told in the last movie that is still obsessed with Michael Myers is Laurie Strode, and she turned all Sarah Connor and, and ruined her daughter's life, quote-unquote, and was ta- her daughter was taken away from her from social services because this woman is crazy. And then we find out the rest of the town hasn't moved on as well and haven't gone to the extent that Laurie did, but still have this post-traumatic stress disorder that she did as well, but to a different level. So it does catch us all up there. All of that is true. It just felt very exposition-y to me the way he did it. And so it was very, very labored and hard and like, hey, everybody, look who's here from the original movie. That kind of stuff. And that they cut to flashes of them from the original movie to be like, in case you have no idea what we're talking about, if you remember the 78 film, here's what this kid looked like. But they wouldn't. You would not have remembered. You couldn't possibly recognize Lindsay. There's no way to recognize that six-year-old girl as that middle-aged woman sitting in a bar. They would have to do that. No. No, that's true. And apparently she is like a 
Beverly Hills housewife or something? She married a Hilton. She's on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And Stuart, though, when I before they were introduced proper, the Marion woman and Lindsay was sitting there at the thing, and I turned to my wife and said, I bet you those are the two people from the original movie. Because it looks so obvious the way it was shot. So I have, you know, that meta knowledge that these sort of things happen. I did not know the guy behind the bar who had the photograph of the other guy with old Hickory the baseball bat. I forgot that character. And Brian. I think that's David Gordon Green just liking local color and just working in locals. Feels like naturalistic non-actors into this town. I don't understand why they got the original Lindsay, but felt like they had to do Anthony Michael Hall for Tommy. You don't get that? Because Anthony Michael <laughs> Hall... All right, actually, I get it. What I don't get is why you don't just recast Lindsay also. She's fine. She's been on camera. She looks good, and she can act in the scenes that she's given. So you get people that can dramatically pull this off. And what I want to stress here is the reason why it doesn't feel like a data dump exposition is Anthony Michael Hall is really good. Ooh. Like, really good in this cannot disagree more i think you and i are seeing different movies here i think this is an exposition data dump that is delivered really poorly and i like adult anthony michael hall in the stuff i've seen him in but in this movie he i think is just off the page i don't know exactly what he's doing i honestly blame the page for why he's not doing well at this opening data dump i think that the words he's given i don't know that anybody could have delivered them in a way that didn't feel just overly cheesy and hey remember me audience but the rest of the movie i don't buy his obsession i feel bad again with the dialogue he's given if i took a shot for every time he says evil dies tonight i think i wouldn't be here for this podcast today i'd be in the hospital for alcohol poisoning i just really do not like him or his character in this that is different. I just want to point out, you not liking Tommy is not the same thing as Anthony Michael Hall not selling this. I liked Anthony Michael Hall in every other scene in this movie. I thought he what he was doing was good for the rest of the movie, but here I did not like him at all for a lot of the reasons Arnie just said and the reasons I said previously. I think that he could not handle the monologue. And he's telling a bunch of people in the room who already know the story. No, they don't. So it doesn't make any sense. A lot of these people are younger. These are the oldest people in this bar. A lot of the crowd, like Marcus and Vanessa, have heard about it, but like it's just not a part of their lives. That was a line they said in the movie, and I heard that part, but to me, they kept on showing us all the old people or all the old characters are referencing that these people were there that night. So therefore, to me, it told me that there's no need for this. It felt like a data dump. But again, I want to I back you up, though. I thought what Anthony Michael Hall did the rest of the movie was strong and made sense for the character that they were saying it's Tommy. So I don't like him here, but I liked him later. I just want to put that out. And to your point, Stuart, where you say they're making a whole town, I think that they focus so much on the 1978 characters. Yes, they focus on characters other than Lori, but they're focusing on Tommy and Lonnie and Lindsay. And so I don't feel like the rest of the town comes into play except for an enormous body count, an absolutely enormous body count. Any new characters that are here are here to die. I don't know how you can say the rest of the town doesn't come into it, but I just want to say, to finish up with Anthony Michael Hall, it's not easy to do Trump. 
it's pretty obvious that what he is being asked to do, even in this speech, he has a very Trumpian line where he says, evil is not going to get us because we will never succumb to fear. Like I remember Trump stump speeches about never succumbing and, you know, we'll always be winning and all of that stuff. They are clearly wanting to get at our times. Like this is the Trumpian figure but you throw Trump in a in a movie, and typically that's like a grenade. That's going to polarize people. They're going to be going into their political camps. They're either going to be virtue signaling or they're going to be turned off. And here, I think they've taken what's sympathetic about Trump and what he really represents to blue-collar people, and that is grievance. We've been wronged. We've been forgotten. We will come back better. And I think he's very sincere in that pain. Really, I did not see Trump in his performance, and I think you'll have to explain that to me as we go through where you see Trump. I don't see Trump in Anthony Michael Hall's performance, but I absolutely see the Trump kind of influence yes. and all that kind of stuff he was talking about all over the movie. Yes. But I did not see that in Anthony Michael Hall here. I guess what I guess Stuart's trying to say is he is the catalyst for getting people to try to get motivation to do these actions later on. He's kind of stirring a pot. Maybe that's what you mean by that. But yeah, absolutely right. The mentality issues and the and the and all that kind of stuff is definitely here throughout the movie with the townies. And I'm looking forward to talking about that. There were mob mentalities long before there was Trump. Agreed. But this movie is about our times right now. And in fact, you see Vanessa talking about how her husband needs to go into work and fuck up her boss and hit him in the face. And you can just feel all of that anger. It's not just Trumpian anger. It's not just like stop the steal and all of that. It's like also get Harvey Weinstein and Me Too. Like we're just living in an age where people are going to go get them. And you can feel it in this scene and you can hear the sincerity of him. What the compliment to Anthony Michael Hall is he's not doing an impersonal of Trump. He's not putting on bad hair and doing mannerisms and acting like that caricature. He is taking what we know Trump, you know, really tapped into and expressing it to Haddonfield. And I think he does it well. My only complaint is that I wish we had more of him in the movie. He will start the ball rolling. In fact, the credit scene has been those classic pumpkins spewing fire now. There's a whole lot more of them representing all these town people, and they're all going to be spewing fire and spitting blood. And then, yes, we do get to Lori, and you had speculated, Stuart, she might not survive that stab wound. She has the fastest surgical recovery in history. Having had arm <laughs> surgery, I was in bed for a couple of days this year. She's going to have, like, her entire guts opened and sewn up, and she's going to be talking and lucid. Uh, She's not on morphine at all. Now, I mean, I actually feel like the it is another surprise of this movie that she really doesn't get out of bed. Yeah, like she gets up to stick her ass with a pain shot. But my prediction was she was going to go out there leading the mob. And in fact, I would say they give more consideration to her injuries and the fact that, you know, she's really not able to move. She will largely be bed bound for this film and the focus will be on other people. A surprise. And I also thought what Arnie thought about her scheduling. I, I know, Arnie, you mentioned the end of the last podcast we did that everyone had assigned multi-picture deals, which is why I think all these other actors are here. Maybe everybody had that in their contract, Arnie. Including the two people going to the car. 
<laughs> exactly. Maybe they did. But my point was maybe Jamie only had like a week because it's very Halloween too to keep her in the hospital the whole time. I just thought it was really weird that she didn't get out and fight. But by the end of the movie, you could see they had a different agenda for her. But while watching the movie, I was just curious why the hell she's still in bed the whole time. That's to me the big twist mind blown is the fact that they tell us, they told us with the last movie, this is about Lori versus Michael. That's what matters. This is the showdown. And this is the movie to say, ah, Lori's not that important. She was just a bystander. In her traumatized mind, she's the focus of all his rage. But who Michael is and what he really wants has nothing to do with her. That is mind blown amazing. And I think the reason why she's in bed and forgotten is because they're sending that signal for the first time. Believe me, it's not easy for me to hear that message either. Jamie Lee Curtis has been a large reason why I felt Halloween is a better slasher than most. But yeah, I was really impressed that they took that risk. And we're going to go kill 11 firemen instead. Wow, that scene when they kill the firemen. The firemen are just doing their job, pulling them out of the fire. And wow, I, I'd never seen murders with a fireman's axe like that before. The fact that he just kept on killing people. And I was saying to them, why don't you spray with the hose? Spraying they with the did. hose. And they did spray with the hose and it just bounced <laughs> off them. Yeah, this tells me that we're going to have a Rob Zombie level of brutality here. And it's a different Michael than was in the original film or even in the last film to some degree. This is a fast, ruthless Michael Myers. I think that's the one thing where they messed up in their 1978 thing is Michael Myers really rushed at that cop. And here he's feeling more like Jason than Michael Myers to me and that no two kills are going to be the same. Oh, this firefighter has this massive buzzsaw. I'm going to buzzsaw him in the head. Oh, this one, he's going to find a new inventive way for every kill. And as a slasher fan, I love it. I absolutely love how brutal this movie is. Yeah, just as a visuals, you know, the the house in flames and pickaxes going through oxygen masks and saws cutting back on people. Like, all of this is just stunning. It's just no one thought Michael was going to die in that trap in Lori's house. But if you thought that he was down for the count, he is back roaring worse than he's ever been. And another amazing thing about this movie, like still my mind is reeling about this. I don't think, you guys help me out, I don't think I've ever seen a slasher movie where most of the victims are over the age of 30. Maybe even over the age of 50. This is the AARP slasher <laughs> <death>. <laughs> So they're killing the target audience. The audience got older from 1978. I'll be honest. It hurts me that Tommy Doyle is so old and realizing that I'm only a few years younger than him. And so the audience got older and so did the victims. So it, the people who saw this in their teenage years can still relate to the victims. Of course, that's a, a message, but all slasher movies... And they're signaling. What they're really about is that it's a real tragedy when people are cut down in their youth. It's so sad that you're a virgin or, you know, like you're just getting into sex and like you will never have a life. These are people that have had a life. Many people at the tail end of their life. I mean, it's a reason why we've never had a slasher movie in a nursing home. Like, you know, no one feels the same remorse for old people being killed the way that they do for teenagers. And so for them to say, no, we're going to go next door and kill Sandra and Phil as my encore to the firefighters. Wow. I'm just mind blown. Wow. 
Sandra and Phil, I looked at those actor and actress and I said, I know those people. I looked it up. Sandra was another minor character from the last film. She didn't even have a name in the last film. She was the caretaker who took the podcasters to Judith Meyer's grave. Yeah. And then Lenny Clark played a fireman on Rescue Me. Yep. Uncle Teddy. So I thought it was really kind of funny that he killed all the firemen, and then he killed one more at the house. He had a lot of life, he says. Um, what is he doing here? I don't give a shit. Call the cops or something like that. It was really funny. Like, yeah, just get out of here. Who cares why he's here? Big fella wearing a monster mask. Yeah, this. Yeah, it was really a funny exchange. That couple was really a lot of fun. My issue with this kill, well, I thought it was awesome. He, Michael comes through the wall and bashes his head and all that kind of stuff. But where I started to get unhappy with the movie, and the movie is telling me maybe we don't have a lot here they kill the the family they kill the couple and then they go back and he puts lenny on the table whatever his real name is in the movie and he stabs him in the back a couple of times while his wife watches helpless and can't do anything about it that was rob zombie kind of to me was more rob zombie-ish i thought he was testing the cutlery about which cuts the sharpest like i actually laughed I thought he was just looking for the biggest knife. I'm like, I thought he was pulling out a knife. Too small, stab in the back. Too small, stab in the back. There's the good knife. <laughs> I agree with you. This one has good texture. I get, I agree with you exactly what he was doing with that and why he was doing it. But the way it was portrayed on screen that the wife had to watch, it was kind of torture for her and then she was dying and bleeding out and all that kind of stuff. The fact that they lingered there so long, in my mind, told me that they don't have a lot here for us in this movie. Wow. I just didn't see why you had to linger here for this gore. This gore wasn't necessary at this point in time. And they do go gory much worse later. And, we're, and they and they mm -hmm. seem to linger. Where I talk about Rob Zombie kind of lingered unnecessarily. You got your point across. I didn't see the reason they had to do that here. And I saw it as a signal of weak script. I'm going to just stop you right there and say I'm shocked. Because I feel like this Halloween movie is bigger and more expansive than anyone we've ever seen before. It's got more on its plate than certainly the original movie or anything that's come before. Like, this, there's so many ideas going on. And I think we linger on this scene because it's brutal. And because we've never seen anything. Like, yeah, this woman comes at him, gets a knife. He grabs that fluorescent tube and goes Ooh. at her neck. Wow. I mean, wow, this scene. I agree with you completely, Stuart, except I also agree with Brock in that this is just here for gore's sake and body count. These murders are pointless in story reasons. They're great in base gratification of a slasher reason. Yes. What movie do you want? Like, do you want an elevated horror movie where Michael goes and writes his American novel? Like, yes, <laughs> he goes and kills people. No, but I can't argue when Brock says that this isn't strengthening the story. He's right. It's not strengthening the story, but it's really fun deaths and I'm enjoying them. It's strengthening the idea that it's not about Lori. And it's strengthening the idea that it's not about even necessarily, although I'm not sure. Again, I do think it is about Judith. I do think that Sartain was right about something and, and that there's something we don't know yet. We'll get there when we get to the, the climax. But there's something we don't know about Michael's motives they're going to reveal to us. And that's really exciting to think about. But like the fact that he could take time to kill these old people is a, definitely a milestone in the slasher genre. Like never seen so many gray hairs go down as I do in this movie. And that's amazing. I did wonder if he sought out Sandra specifically because mm -hmm. Sandra took the podcasters to the grave last time. And like he was still holding a grudge about taking the podcasters to Judith's grave. 
I also want to just compliment, you know, David Gordon Green is on the script as well and Danny McBride. Like, we were like, why would these goofy people be, like, their goofiness is actually fun. When we get the repartee, right before this death scene, he's, you know, saying to Sandra, your mother must be using my sleep apnea mask because it smells like cigarettes. Like, this is just fun local color stuff. This is just like enjoyable. I like these characters because of these little bits. We only have seconds with them, but I like them so much more than anybody that's ever been at a summer camp in a Friday the 13th movie or in most slasher films. Like they know how to give you enough details to make you smile and win you over. I'll put them right there with Demon and his burritos. No, come on. They're better. Yes, Demon's his own thing, but (laughs) by and large, by and large, all these characters have more life to them. And this movie, it's very important that we care about people. They're not just bowling pins to be knocked down. This is about a town. And Arnie, you were saying that, like, why would Tommy crash this talent show? But, like, when the ventriloquist comes on, it's time for everyone to go home. Like, this- Hey, that ventriloquist, I briefly thought his puppet was Walter. If you've ever seen Jeff Dunham, yes. the yes. jokes felt like Walter. The puppet looked like Walter. All right. Yeah. Time to go home. You know, it comes across the news and people's cell phones. That bus crash we saw yesterday, it did have Michael in it. He's out on the loose. And yeah, we we suddenly have what looks like the next death. Vanessa being told by her husband, I got to go get my stethoscope, go sit in the car. And someone's in the backseat, but it's not Michael. Go look. Hell no. That was another funny line. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It clearly wasn't going to be Michael because it's not Michael's MO. I didn't know who it was, but I knew it wasn't going to be Michael in that car. Even though, yes, the way she's dressed in that slutty nurse outfit, because, you know, that's what you do at Halloween is find anything, put the adjective slutty before it, and that's a woman's outfit. But the way she's dressed, everything feels like she would be Michael's next victim. I knew that wasn't going to be Michael in the trunk. I had no idea that we'd be seeing a rendition of twins in this movie where everybody thinks Danny DeVito's Arnold Schwarzenegger, but... I don't think he's that short, but yeah, we did... (laughs) He was in the original movie, if you remember that chessboard Mm -hmm. courtyard. He had the umbrella. Uh, Yeah, right. And they even kind of tip you off on that. Like, when he turns on the car radio, they're playing Figaro, which was one of the other crazies was singing in that moment as well. But I did not realize who it was. You're right. We know it can't be Michael, but what the hell is this is a nice suspenseful moment when it goes streaking, you know, across the parking lot, nearly running down Tommy Doyle. Eventually, the scene ends with it crashed and we see, oh, yeah, that guy, one of the other people from the bus has wandered into town, and uh, they're chasing the wrong man. They mentioned it on the TV. They obscure Michael's face when they put Michael's face on the TV, but they show this guy who looks like, he reminded me of uh, the guy from, what's his name, David Crosby. That was very clever because you don't ever show Michael's face full on, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so they set us up for who this guy would be, and they have a lot of time with this guy in this movie too, and it was very interesting they brought this element into it, but it certainly pays off later. If they just had him here and didn't have him come back later... It would have been a complete waste of time. The fact that they'd set it up here for later also, that scene worked because also it started stoking the paranoia. It really, or Tommy Doyle at least, uses him for that purpose. I mean, again, it's part of the theme, like suddenly it's not all all about Michael anymore. There's like other people out there. What are they going to do? I wasn't necessarily convinced that he was an innocent, that 
Oh, no, he was in that hospital for the criminally insane. I right, mean, yeah. This guy's a bad guy. Right, yeah. You Like, how many other Michaels could there be? Like, how many other people could be killed and then pinned on Michael? How awesome would it be if his name was Jason or Freddy? Just, just, out of, just for fun. <laughs> I'm telling you that bully from the 78 flashback was Chucky. The red hair, the <laughs> overalls, everything. I recognize Chucky instantly, but you said something about the other two being other horror icons. Were they anybody? They were twin girls, so I just thought maybe they weren't wearing the dresses, but they. Oh, the shining? Shining, yeah. Twins are creepy anyway, just to start with, so it's good enough. <laughs> but then we get introduced to a couple of really fun characters Big John and Little John. I gotta say, I'm retiring Monster Mash. It's Halloween, stop, look, and listen. I had never heard this song before. I love it. But when he's smoking that joint and dancing around to it, I'm like, yeah, this is how I'm spending my Halloween, people. I'm actually going to do this. Can you send me a video, please? Just FaceTime <laughs> me a little bit. It's Pete Antel. It's Halloween, stop, look, and listen is what the track's called. I haven't downloaded it yet, but it, it will be in rotation. There's not enough. You know, you can only play Michael Jackson's Thriller so many times, and so this has got to go to the top uh, this guy brings a lot of life both of these i know the other guy of course from mad tv his name is escaping me uh it's michael mcdonald not the singer and, <laughs> but the, this guy dancing apparently he's also on tv all over the place too i don't know this actor he's in the danny mcbride show actually like righteous gemstones i don't know it but that's how he got the gig there you go these two add so much life to this movie i love uh this scene when he's dancing uh, the, they make a really fun couple and the whole thing with the kids coming up with the pranking, it seems like a tangent at this time. But again, they're giving the characters who die, spoiler alert, they're going to die in a Halloween movie. Um, they give them at least one scene to give us an idea of who they are, why we should like them, and why it's a tragedy when they die. And they set up, of course, that they live at the old Myers house. These two bought the old Myers house and are happy to do that, proud of it. And I love how they try to scare the kids with it. It's lots of fun. Well, the kids get them first. First of all, they probably got a bargain on the real estate. I mean, we saw how that house looked and the fact that they have to advertise it as the Myers house. And if you're looking for the whole everybody who dies in a horror movie has a reason for being killed, are they being killed for trying to scare kids with a real life murder? I don't think that that's you're you're going old world like we're leaving behind rule why well, we're not because there's a new screen movie coming out in January but the rules of this movie have nothing to do with the puritan qualities of the early 80s that's, I agree that was at a time when teenagers weren't supposed to have sex or do drugs and we don't live in those times they're still not supposed to no they do it with their parents like it's a totally different era right now they have sex with their parents what are you talking I guess about they do on Pornhub I mean that is like half of it they do drugs with their parents there's you know they tell their parents their sex lives I feel like we live in a much more permissive attitude that the rules of the 1980s the conservative nature of that no. They're killed because we were trying to guess it. If you listen to the podcast uh, on Halloween 2018, we were like, is that the old Myers house? Every time we went into a house, we were thinking that must be the old house. He hadn't gotten there yet. I don't think I had made that connection until... Yeah, these trick-or-treaters come and pretend they've swallowed razor blades from their candy bowl so that they can have uh, the guy in the silver shamrock skeleton grab the whole bowl. And we might have seen those kids last time, too, because those silver shamrock mask-wearing kids were trick-or-treating. Or they could have been other ones. I mean, I imagine more than three people bought silver shamrock masks, but maybe not. Well, yeah, they had to enter the big contest, so... Mm. <laughs> 
but you don't realize it's important until they're like, yeah, they try to turn it back on the kids. And I love how they like make up their own mythology. Suddenly, like Judith is a ghost, like screaming Michael's name in the upstairs room. And they really like anyone that's not invited to go in the house dies. I'm like, no, you guys are dead, actually. Anyone that, that would be in that house. See? So you agree with me. The story they tell, you know they're going to die for it. No, they're going to die for because they're literally in the wrong place at the wrong time. They are in the Myers house. They're at his house. They're going to die because Michael wants to come home. Honestly, we all knew where he was going. We all know. We know. The audience knows that he's going home. Mm-mm. No way, Brock. No, we didn't. We thought he was coming for Lori. There was no way you ever had a thought in your head he didn't want to kill Jamie LeCurtis. You know what's funny is for me, I agree with you, Stuart. I thought he was coming for Jamie Lee the whole movie. But when you find out what happened, it all goes back to that original 1978 Halloween tagline. The night he came home. He wants to go home. That's all he wants is to go home. And yet when we cut back to the hospital, Karen is the one now convinced that like, okay, he's coming here. Michael is coming here and we're in trouble and you need to put it on lockdown and and all of that. We think because it's essentially Halloween 2, they're going to do what they did in the 1980 Halloween 2 and have him like stalking nurses and chasing Jamie Lee down hospital corridor. I have a question and I kind of feel I missed something. Why is Judy Greer wearing a Christmas sweater the whole movie? I was blown away by that. I was like, yes, this is, I noticed it. Was she wearing it in the last movie is really my question. Yeah, she had it on last movie too, as inexplicable as it is. Oh. Oh, really? So this whole time, okay, Halloween for her is about whatever, like I think it was snowflakes and, and Christmas trees on that sweater. Do you think it's a jab at Freddy Krueger because it's red and green? Mmm, you could be onto something. I watched that other movie right before I watched this one, and I don't remember that at all, so that's strange. It's like she got it out of the lost and found of the hospital or something. Or maybe she only wears Christmas clothes. <laughs> like, 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 now I'm thinking, because she would have had to change out of the bloody thing, right? Like, No, I mean, it's the same one she had on in the back of the truck. Okay, all right. So many details. I'm telling you, the continuity between the two films. Yeah, you do need to see both in close succession. But either way, you're right. I like there was a moment right at the end, actually, when the mob was there and she's standing there. I'm like, wait a minute. Those are snowflakes and Christmas trees on her sweater. And she's going to have her own problems with her daughter. You know, they finally had that moment. We said it didn't seem like a big deal when the husband got axed in the last movie. Now they're going to have a split idea about how to memorialize him. Karen is like, he'll always be with us. Let's just prey on it, basically. And Allison is like, nope, I need to go join this mob. I'm going to make up with my boyfriend and I'm going to go kill Michael. She makes up with her boyfriend pretty quick, but then again, when on the night your dad dies, perhaps you kissing would. another girl isn't that big a deal. I love that. I love the fact that they wouldn't have that drama be something she was even thinking about when you're in the thick of something this crazy. And it's not like they go out on a date. They go out on a hunt. I mean, mm-hmm. she does hug him for comfort, but by and large, they're not doing a boyfriend-girlfriend activity here. They're doing a, we're going to go out and kill the guy who killed my dad activity. And I... 
who knew? I didn't. I, I mean, did we know Lonnie's last name was Elam in 1978? Were we supposed to? I guess they did drop it. They dropped the line in 2018 that Cameron's dad's name was Lonnie. So it was all set up that Cameron was Lonnie's kid. And so, yeah, when they go out on the hunt with Lonnie, that it was planned. Not only that, but like Stan in the last movie was like, oh yeah, Lonnie used to sell me drugs. In this movie, Lonnie's like, no, your father used to give me peyote or whatever. Like they can't agree on which one gave the drugs, but they, they were both pals. In the past, they were good friends. They also said that, that Lonnie was, uh, they didn't really portray him in a very positive light in the last movie. Like he was, uh, I couldn't remember exactly how they said it, but. He, he, was, he had substance abuse issues, essentially. And that we should yeah. be looking at Cameron as also potentially being a, a drunk or abuser. Yeah. That's it. And so, yeah, we didn't see him last time. And now we do. He is the caretaker from the Haunting of Hill House. And a fun presence here. Doesn't maybe get enough screen time. But, yeah, I really like the camaraderie. Again, I'm going to go back to those script details of feeling like there's such a big cast here. But I like every one of them because they're going to do or say one little thing that's going to stick with me. Even Allison, who I felt like last time, I was like, I don't need you. I am intrigued about how she's going to go Rambo. So the posse, the amateur posse gets together. I mean, I'm not sure there's such thing as a professional posse, but you get my point. Is they get a posse, old-fashioned posse together, and they go out looking for Michael, and they go and split into groups. Riled up again by Tommy with his line. There was a charity box on the bar that said, Love Lives Today, which inspires Evil Dies Tonight. There you go. Playing into their fears, playing into, you know, all of those. I mean, he doesn't have to. Here's the thing. He's not wrong for that. They should be afraid. They do need to take action. I've wanted and wondered what all the adults in a Halloween movie are doing while the teenagers are being stalked. How refreshing that they're here in this film and that they care about their children and that they're going to go out there and get justice. I agree with you that it's refreshing that the parents care about their kids after being at the bar all night, but <laughs> what I don't like is they basically demonstrate why posses don't get together to hunt a killer. These people are completely underqualified for this, and they die for it. A big issue in this movie is they go out, Michael Myers typically kills people who are doing their own thing, minding their own business, quote-unquote. Here, he kills a whole bunch of people who are gunning to get him. I'm not saying he's justifiably killing them. What I am saying is that this is the first horror movie that I can remember in a long time, if any, where the a lot of the victims are going after the killer and die for it. So there's kind of like a Dracula kind of thing for it, like the, the posse together to kill Dracula in those movies, you know, with pitchforks and torches. But on the other hand, you got something going on here like you're asking for it. You're going after this guy and you have no idea what you're going after or how to do it. None of them have automatic weapons. They all carry clubs and knives. If you just had an automatic weapon, you can kill him from far away. It doesn't make any sense. I really did think that with Tommy grabbing that baseball bat. I'm like, get a gun. You saw that knife. You were across the street when Loomis shot him six times and the guy kept on walking. Yeah, and yet I feel like the, the tie that I'm having, the movie I'm realizing I'm suddenly in, and it's funny because we were just covering all of these, Home Invasion. Home Invasion is a style of horror movie but it's always felt different than slasher movies to me because it is about the victims fighting back and losing their moral compass. 
like they end up becoming maybe just as bad or at the very least compromised in their attempts to defend their home and protect themselves from evil. And so we're definitely going to see a lot of beats taken from straw dogs. That makes sense to me. And the posse getting together to defend their town, they're completely underqualified and undergunned, even though they think they're doing okay. Which is what a posse normally is. But are, are you saying, again, that these are, what, it's Antifa who does all of the mob rule these days, right? It's not Trumpers other than January 6th, but this was before Jan 6th. Wow, yeah, let's not try and label people. The point is we live at a time where everyone is fighting back, right? We can all agree everyone feels justified in attacking. Right, but if if at this point when Michael Myers kills a whole bunch of people and then he kills a bunch of firemen and first responders, right? Where is the next level of law enforcement posses coming out with like where is the next town over's police or their SWAT team or the next level of law enforcement? Why aren't they coming in to hunt him down? At this point, call the National Guard. Well, I'm not sure National Guard can get there fast, but that's what I'm getting at is like there are different levels of actual law enforcement who actually do have the guns, the tactical. And so while I understand what we're watching and why we're watching it and all the character stuff we're doing here, what I'm not getting is if this is 2018, why aren't the next level of law enforcement? Why is the sheriff and the three cops in town still handling this themselves? And why is mob mentality coming in? Well, that's what's interesting is that in the last movie, Sheriff Barker was his name. I don't know if it's for Clive or not, but he was the one like laughing like, oh, you want to shut down Halloween just because Michael Myers is back 40 years later. No, not happening. Now in this movie, you can see him being like, uh-oh, I should have. <laughs> like, I really, I really needed to get a handle on this much sooner. And by the time he's actually trying to say, hey, I'm the law, everyone's screaming, well, the system failed. And law doesn't count. And we're the law. And you're not, you're, you're impotent. Get out of our way. So like he's, again, if you look at this as a trilogy, we haven't seen him done yet. Maybe he is going to pick up that phone and call in the cavalry, you know, next movie. But in this one, it's just for him to realize I no longer have control of my town. Right. That was clear. I get the mentality of the, t the mob. I get what they're doing. But I just couldn't stop shaking my head like, what are you doing? Like, I, I just, I don't understand intellectually why these people who all have families and they, they're all haunted by their past and they just, we'll go get them now, we, we'll take back our lives. All of that I understand on an intellectual level, but their choices here are just mind-boggling. It's frustrating, and I noticed with my mom watching it, she kept screaming like, this movie's bad. And I'm like, really? What, why do you think it's bad? And, and I realized what she was really saying is, I'm so angry. This movie is frustrating me so much because I'm watching all these people make terrible choices. We're used to that in horror movies, but usually those choices are, you know, premarital sex and drugs and what have you. This is a, another level of that. They've taken that formula, and now we're judging characters for what they're doing for different motivations. And it is. It's really like, I, I, I'm not quite spitting fire out of my pumpkin, but I am feeling like, wow, this is inflammatory. And it is just the definition of mob mentality. I mean, this is what they say is you you get so riled up in the moment that what the choices you make aren't necessarily the smartest choices. Yeah. 
But let's uh, let's finish off. We've had some of these classic characters. They get a big scene here. They ride in on a playground, see some kids playing after dark and want to protect them. I love how they make fun of 1978. He just plays peekaboo. Scary. <laughs> yeah, I do love those kids. <laughs> and, you know, they're waiting for their friend. That's where you know, like, oh, yeah, that Skull Silver Shamrock ain't coming back. They're waiting <laughs> for their friend to come back, but they're not no, scared of no man in white mask. And, yeah, this is a real... Really, it's both a fun callback and like an innovation as well. Michael's going to jump on top of the car again and grab the nurse, just like he did in 1978. Only this time, he's going to take a huge chunk of hair. I felt so bad for Marion. And, you know, she thinks she has the upper hand. You know, she's got that badass line. Hey, Michael, this is for Dr. Loomis. Click. Uh, should have checked the chamber. She made me laugh. She kept on shooting the glass out like people do in old westerns. Like, pl- mm-hmm. knock the glass out with the gun and shoot. She had the firepower, she thought. And when she gets it, the other guy is in the back seat just watching? No, he's trying to choke him. Eventually, he takes a stethoscope and tries to choke him. But for a good few minutes, he's sitting there like, Oh my god, look what's happening. Dude, help her out! But this is the point, Brock. I do agree. It's so frustrating to watch these people, like, not be good at this vigilante thing. You came saying you were a badass. They handed you a gun. You're like, uh, I don't know how to fire it. You hand it to your wife. She ends up shooting herself in the face. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, and yeah, you just watch as this old woman gets stabbed in the front seat. Yeah, like, suddenly you realize you can have all of the anger in the world, but that is not going to translate into being effective at law enforcement. Very true. And so that is, again, the feelings that I'm having here is that these people have, I mean, of course, as Michael Myers, you know, he would be formidable for anybody. Even trained professionals probably aren't going to be able to put him down. But yeah, these clowns, they don't have a a prayer. I mean, what does Lindsay do? She grabs a bunch of rocks and puts it in a trick-or-treat bag and just starts swinging it at him. I'm like, yeah, ain't going to work. Well, that was pretty inventive, though, and it does whip his head around. (laughs) It would kill a normal person. Well, okay, fair enough. And at this point, they don't know he's supernatural, theoretically. I think Tommy should, but the rest may not. Yeah. I want to give props to this reality star. I know she started as a kid actor. She did a couple of movies when she was little, and now she's a reality star. I thought she was very convincing in this entire scene. She puts the bricks in the thing, she hits them, and she runs away, and when she's scared in the tree, the whole thing. She did great. She really was convincing, and that's like kind of a, a lower, slower quieter moment of this movie when she's hiding for her life and Michael creaks on that bridge. That whole sequence was a different kind of sequence than we see the rest of the movie and I thought that was very cool. It was more of a suspense horror than a slasher horror and it completely turned my head. I'm like, oh, I got really into that moment of the movie. So bravo to her and that and the filmmakers for making a quiet moment and a suspenseful moment in this otherwise just slasher movie. And you know what? I think she's coming back because she lives. And I think they wheel her back to the hospital. So there's every reason to believe that she's going to be a part of the third movie. She's seen him. You know, that was the one thing was that while she was fighting with him, she pulled up the mask. She's seen his face. At the very least, it means she's not going to identify Danny DeVito, as Arnie pointed out. Like She's not going to call out the wrong guy when they're chasing him next movie. Did she see his face? I know she got the mask up somewhat, but I couldn't tell if she got it up enough to see the face or if she she just got it over his eyes. And so he let her go because he wanted to get that mask straightened again. Also, I think they made a point of the granddaughter, Allison, seeing Michael's face full on for the next movie later on. That's why I think they did that at the end of the movie, jumping kind of quickly. So here is a preview of that. 
Yeah. And of course, you know, what they see, we can't know because they're going to keep that from us. Each time we think we're going to get a peek under the mask, uh, we do not get it. I do agree. I think all of the callbacks have been really successful. Poor Marion, like she did well. I think Lindsay did well. Probably a good idea to recast Tommy, but you know, Anthony Michael Hall is doing well. The one that I have trouble with, God bless him, Charles Cyphers was the original sheriff in the 78 movie. He's been demoted to hospital security force now. He is just little too feeble here, but he's going to be joining this mob that is building in the lobby of the hospital screaming evil dies tonight. And he just, I guess you would include him because he's still alive and his daughter was killed by Michael. You know, she was that babysitter to Lindsay, Annie. Yeah, but maybe he had a full career and he retired and now he's a security guard at a hospital. Let's give this guy, you know, demoted is kind of sad. <laughs> give him a chance to say he's having, he's collecting two pensions, something like that. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, it's better than a Walmart greeter, but you right, know, yeah, only barely. But, yeah, but he certainly has the history with Michael Myers too, and the age, right? He's he's lived his life without Oof, his daughter. Has he? Yes. So yeah, I understand his joining the mob aspect of it. I just think his line readings are a guy who hasn't yeah. worked in a while. Yeah. It, what... it is the most unfortunate line reading when he, they give him the line to make the statement that we've turned into the monsters. You know, like they're going to have this big moment. Again, I was thinking a lot about David Warner in Straw Dogs or Lenny in Of Mice and Men. Like the whole hospital is losing its shit and they're going to chase. They gave him a name in the credits, but I don't know that I ever heard Lance Tovoli. Does that ring a bell for anybody? No, I don't think I ever heard that said. But no. yeah, I saw that also in the credits. Lance. He doesn't look like a Lance to me. but <laughs> He doesn't look like a Michael Myers to me. I mean, it, has any of these people seen <laughs> Michael Myers in person? Because anybody who saw him in person wouldn't think this is the guy. But of course, Arnie, that's part of it. Like, that's the point of like, if you just stop and use your brain for just a half second, obviously... This is not right. Like, obviously, you don't do this. But because people are so worked up and because people on some secret level just want to fucking kill anybody, you know, just like that nurse said earlier, I just want you to punch your boss in the face. Like, because we just want it so bad, does it even matter if it's Michael or not? We're angry. They've killed my child. They've killed my boyfriend. They've killed this. And I want blood. I understand that point of view. I understand that I never lived that, thankfully. I mean, we are living it. I mean, I do feel like that's America 2021, pretty on the nose. Mm -hmm. Was it America 2019? Yeah, when this was filmed, but maybe he's right. Maybe they were prognosticating where we're heading. Yes, I understand all of this. It makes total sense to me on an intellectual level. It just frustrates the hell out of me to watch it. Yeah, I agree. I'll say this. This half hour of the movie is completely uninteresting to me. There's all this stuff in the hospital, all this chasing the wrong guy, all this stuff with Tommy. Michael Myers kind of drops out of the movie for 20, 30 minutes, and it is a hard 20 or 30 minutes to get through. I also want to go on an exactly the same take that while we're listening to Michael Myers, and I understand the movie is expanding away from the Strodes, it kind of seems like a wasted opportunity. I'm kind of here to continue the story of Lord and I'm not getting that story at all. I and We talked a lot last time about how they're trying to hand it off to the next generation. They're not handing it off to the next generation. They're staying the exact same generation for the majority of this movie. The young girl finally goes off with Lonnie and his son, but we're not getting a whole bunch of stuff with the Strodes until 
the, the last 20 minutes of the movie, it kind of feels like they're spinning their wheels a lot instead. It, I get all of what you're saying, Stuart. I'm just not interested in any of these characters and... Why do I care? I'm spending so much time with them. And then they're asking, in a way, asking to get killed. They're going out hunting a guy. I understand their motivations for it, but they're, it just seems like it's really strange why I, I care so much about these people and this movie is not helping me do it. I agree with you, Brock. I really do. I'll run down the list of complaints that I heard you say. I care about these people because David Gordon Green and Danny McBride have written most of them funny little things and there's just stuff going on in the background. There's a mime here. There is a mime screaming evil dies tonight. Like that's just funny to me. Like it's a full on mime people and he's screaming. It's Halloween, Stuart. It's like it's a costume. Oh, you're right. It's probably just a costume. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here I am thinking it's a professional. I'm like, they got mime screaming. They're so angry. Marcel Marceau was there in the mob. What the hell? <laughs> you're right. You're right. It's Halloween. Some of these are costumes. And it is starting to feel like a loony bin. It is starting to feel like the madness of the shape. Not Michael, but the shape is expanding. And I agree. That is a risk to take that maybe some in the audience, I'm hearing it's you two guys, don't want to do. I don't want to go and follow these people. I don't care if they get corrupted or not. But to me, it's completely captivating and fascinating to think that it's not about one dude with a knife walking around killing people. It's the idea that an entire town could destroy itself out of fear. Okay, that's not the movie I came for, Stuart. I'm here for a Halloween movie. So the last movie is a sequel to the last movie, which had a lot to do with the Strodes and the Strode family and Michael Myers coming back to town. This movie is taking that and going off a different angle on it, and maybe it will come around back in the third one. It's in the middle of a trilogy, they're saying to us, right? So they needed to actually expand stuff so they have enough material for three movies, maybe. But I came here to see a continuation of the last movie, and what I'm seeing is a whole different take and angle on it. They pulled the rug. Right? I agree with you, Brock, in that it's not even that that's what I came here to see. I'm open to whatever experience the filmmakers want to give me. However, they want to have it both ways. The beginning seems to be Strode-focused, and then later we're going to be a little bit more focused on the younger Strodes. But in the middle here, we've got this towny bit where I don't feel like any of the characters are well set up enough for me to have any empathy. And if they're just trying to make a commentary on mob mentality, are they saying anything that hasn't been said before? I don't think so. Everything has been said before, but this is this presentation of the, of old ideas. Like, I'm not going to attack a movie for not being innovative on, on human nature. We all know how people are. It's how you present it. And I do feel like this movie has never been Strode-focused. It started with Hawkins. It started with the man that was in the background telling us his Halloween night, 1978. It's never been about Laurie in this movie. And you're right. It is a struggle, particularly as a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. I'm like, but where is she? Where is she? And I love having the rug pulled out from under me and realizing, oh, Michael doesn't want to kill her. Michael's not coming to this hospital. Everything that she did in those 40 years of building the trap and he's going to come to my door and I'll get him and all of that. You spent all of that energy on, on what he did to you and he didn't think about you once. He doesn't give nothing about Laurie Strode. That is amazing. Well, when you put it that way, yeah. I'm cool with that. It's just this whole bit in the middle trying to kill the other inmate and all of that where I'm checked out of this movie. It couldn't interest me less. 
Now, they are doing some cross-cutting, and they, again, I hear you guys not liking the, the editing choices, but I always feel that they're trying to remind you of how many things are going on at once. And we are cutting back to the Myers house. We are seeing that as this crazy is going out his window, Michael is going back to the Judith window, and we see an end to Big John and Little John. Because we're spending so much time with townies, while I like Big John and Little John, their earlier introduction scene, you knew they were being set up to die, but it felt a little pointless at the moment when it was in the movie, and now here we're going to get the payoff where, yeah, they're just sitting back again trying to enjoy Halloween and think the kids have come back, and I like that Big John is ready to stab them with a pitchfork. I love that whole thing with the little knife and the bigger knife, the cheese knife. I'm ready to have this. <laughs> yeah. He takes off his jewelry and you think, yeah. oh, shit. And then he picks the up the knife. cheese knife and you're like, oh. That was very funny. Very funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, again, there's not a character death here where I'm not feeling for the people. And that's rare. Usually in any slasher movie, you might like demon in the toilet. But who were the other people? Like, I mean, I feel like every single death, we of course know their fate doesn't change the fact that we have some level of compassion and suspense. I think this movie, you know, is he under the bed? Where's he coming from? The jump scare moments, they all play to me. I think I have compassion for Little John and Big John here and Lenny Clark and his wife more than I do for Lonnie and Tommy Doyle and the mob. Because the way they set these characters up who are just living their lives and their lives get upended versus the lives who are already upended and they go bloodthirsty out to get revenge. That's an interesting way to look at it compared to what you're saying, Stuart, but I very much have empathy for these two. It what kills me, the whole movie, you know, stay safe, stay in the car, be safe, stay in the house, stay safe. Michael goes in cars. Michael goes in houses. <laughs> we see it in this movie that it's not going to keep you safe. So I feel more empathy for Big John and Little John. And they could have gone running out. I mean, they didn't have to die. They knew Michael was in the house. They go and see the back door open, bloody handprint, footsteps upstairs. And, you know, they made the choice. I'm going to defend my home. Like, that is their role in this. Yes, Michael is a killer, but you didn't have to die tonight. You're dead in part because your anger and your need to protect your home uh, drove you to uh, physical conflict. You couldn't win. And, ooh, the knife going into the armpit felt like a new one. Eek. Yes, that did. And there's a good artery under there, and I cannot recall seeing that ever. Yeah, and then he gouges his eyes out after that, which was something I think Michael's never done also, right? Yeah, I mean, I've seen it in other movies, Blade Runner being the, the one I always go to. But yes, if you're a gorehound, this is all great. It is, but it is the eyes where you see something spurt, and it cuts in a quarter of a second or less, that I'm like, I bet that they had even more here, that the MPAA, they drew a line in the sand and went, y you can go to 11, but we're not going to let you take it to 13. <laughs> what are you talking about? When the guy jumps out the window, we get three shots of him laying on the ground with his brain splot all over the place. Oh, yeah. It was definitely a Humpty Dumpty kind of joke, though. I feel like... Like it was willing to show us Rob Zombie things, but it had love for people in ways that Rob Zombie never does. I always have contempt for everyone on screen in a Rob Zombie movie. And the difference is I'm still getting that visceral shock of, of splatter and limbs, but I actually, I moved. It's sad. I cry a little, you know, symbolically, I cry for these characters. Yeah, and Little John should have just 
run the hell away instead of, Michael, you've come home, and just stand there to die. Again, I mean, what did he have to live for? I mean, his house is ruined, his partner is dead, and again, I think they probably bought the house for the story, right? You get a sense that it was important to them. They really loved Halloween, and like there was just something about being in the Myers house that was... An attraction. Now being his next victim, I don't know, maybe it's even secret wish fulfillment. We can't know. But it's, it's yes, it's an interesting moment. And again, it tells us, what is Michael going to do now? Now that he is home, now that he's been staring out the window, we thought he was, you know, it was theorized by the cops. Oh, he was always looking out at Haddonfield, plotting all the people he was going to murder. And this movie, as we move into the climax, is now going to be like, you know, windows are mirrors. They reflect back on you. And maybe he's just been contemplating himself or something else. And we can't know in this film, but it's really exciting to think that Michael has had a motive that we've never known before that will be revealed next time. I did like that whole aspect of the mirror thing. Uh, I did like how they brought it up with Karen later on, right? And I almost called you Arnie. Like, the way that Karen's going to finish out this picture, like, uh, you know what? <laughs> There's someone I don't have empathy with. I've been saying how much I like all of these characters. But I really, you know what? I was prepared to see Allison and Cameron die when they follow his father into the house. I thought, oh, they're going to kill the young ones and God help us, it's going to be Judy Greer and Jamie Lee Curtis <laughs> next time. Lonnie goes in by himself and brings his son and says, stay in the car where it's safe. I've already covered that aspect. And then the kids go in there because they hear a gunshot. They don't call for help. They don't call on the cell phone. Hey, Tommy, come over here. He's at the house. They don't call the cops. They do nothing but go inside. She has the best weapon of anybody so far with this giant shotgun, right? She has the kind of weapon that could probably put him down. Does she know how to shoot, though? Like, the thing is, she wasn't raised the way Judy Greer was. And I would think that Karen wouldn't let her daughter anywhere near a pistol. Does she know how to shoot it? I don't know. Does she have the right weapon for the job? Finally, somebody does. Yes. But it still makes zero logical sense for her to walk in that house with her boyfriend, not boyfriend, to find his dad without calling back up first. It doesn't make any sense. Blinded by anger. She believes that she can han handle it. Blinded by anger, concern. She wants to handle it. She wouldn't be satisfied watching the cops gun down Michael. This is the man that killed her father. She's going to kill him. Plus, she's a high school student. How many times did you call your parents for help in high school? My answer is zero because <laughs> I felt like I could handle it. Fine, fine. But yeah, more brutal kills await us here. We figured Cameron, right? Like, he just had to die. I didn't. Really? I didn't either. I thought because she came in and tried to stop him and Cameron was still alive when she starts yelling at Michael and say come get me I thought Cameron was going to survive this encounter I and I'm like is he dead is he alive because he got beat hard again I can't emphasize this enough the level of brutality it's not just gore it's not just blood and viscera it's brutal pounding and this kid I'm like well he looks like he might still be alive, and then Michael's just going to stop and twist his neck 180 degrees. Like, no, no coming back for him. Yeah, and then she keeps on yelling, no, no, no. He's going to do it, man. And you came in the house, you had a feeling that this is going to happen, didn't you? And then she baits him, like, come for me, motherfucker. And you know that, he, I mean, mom even tried to tell her that. Like, if grandma built a giant flaming trap and he got out of that... You and your anger and your 17-year-old self 
not going to do it. And I thought for sure she'd pay for that. I thought that this is, I'm like, yep, and this is what you get. You're dead. Nope. Now, the mother pays for the sins of the children in this case because she almost dies. She's going to go for that stab and Michael Myers just grabs her hand midair turns that knife around, going to stab her with her own hand. It's like that old kid's joke of stop punching yourself, stop (laughs) punching yourself, stop stabbing yourself. So, (laughs) yeah. And we saw in the trailer when she's down and going, do it, do it. But it is until you see the movie that she's telling her mom, hey, you got the pitchfork from the Johns. Stab him in the back with the pitchfork. Oh, is that Mm. what that was? That was her. I thought she was asking to just be killed. I actually. Me too. I did. I don't know. It could play either way, Arnie. But you're probably right. I hope you're right, Arnie. I hope she you're right. She probably was thinking, "Mom, do it." Yeah. She says it three times. The first two times she's looking at Michael, and it's like, "Kill me, kill me." But the third time she turns and looks past Michael and says it. And then we cut to Judy Greer with the pitchfork. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't. Miss, I didn't catch that then. Okay. And so Karen gets the mask, and she leads Michael away. You know, we think that she's going to set well she's claiming i'm sacrificing myself you can come kill me i'm your judith tonight and my you know daughter who is probably not able to walk at this point after that tumble down the stairs can maybe crawl away to the bushes or something but in fact it has all been a well choreographed plan to put the mask in the middle of the street so that the awaiting mob can finish the job and i thought this might actually be the end of michael this seems like mm-hmm. it really could be yeah, for sure yes. I thought like, oh, wow, Halloween Ends is going to be about something other than Michael. I even predicted it for this movie that the shape would take a new shape. And so now as I'm watching this, I'm like, well, they've clearly won. Haddonfield has clearly defeated the evil. He dies tonight. And now they become the evil. Someone else becomes the new shape. And uh, it's brutal. You know, it's, it's even Karen, the pacifist. You can see her like... Hanging back, but then, like, starting to get into it, she gets the final stab there. There's something very addictive about this brutality, this violence she claims she never wanted to be a part of. There's a secret side of her that is very happy to participate. He also killed her husband. There is something to be said about revenge. Right. She killed Stan, you know? Like, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Still her husband, still the father of her child. I know, but you know what? Like, was was that a, a romance for the ages? I don't know. Okay. I like this scene when the mob gets him. I thought that was a nice comeuppance. I thought that was a nice way to end the movie. And he's sitting there and she gets this, uh, this last stab in the back of the neck thing. I thought that was great. Michael's staying still. And I am home watching this, right? And I'm yelling at the screen, will somebody please take that gun and put a couple in the back of his head? Will somebody just pop him? And they were. The old sheriff. No, they shot him many times. Put a couple in the back of his head and they didn't. They were. Lee Brackett is old. This is what I'm saying about that 90-year-old sheriff. Is like, he was just doddering down there, but he was wobbling and coming for him. It just took five minutes is the problem. They send Karen away to go attend to her daughter while they finish the job. Tommy's got the baseball bat, and this father of Annie has got the gun, and he's like putting it right up to the temple to do exactly as you say. And this is when we, again, another amazing surprise of this movie, Michael is not dying tonight. And He stands up and we should have known from the firefighters. 11 people surrounding me is not hard. I don't need to worry if I'm outnumbered because I'm pure evil. But an amazing turn, right? Like watching these people go down. Stunning. And we get the speech, the biggest moment for Jamie Lee this entire movie beyond kneeing a guy in a balls and 
pulling a staple in her stomach, is going to be discussing somehow knowing that he is beyond human. And the more kills he gets, the more powerful he becomes. And this is where I'm thinking of the Order of the Thorn. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's more symbolic, Arnie. I mean, I, I think that movie made that literal, the idea of cults and black magic and what have you. This is more about, I'm making a statement about our times. And the more that we feed into our fears, the more likely we are to destroy ourselves. Is something I deeply believe every time I turn on the news. Yeah, and Michael escapes and goes home again. Yes, yeah, this is the happy ending. I'm predicting, Arnie, it was a cheer moment for you. No, I do not hate her. I do not hate Judy Greer, despite how often you say I hate Judy Greer. No, no, no. Own what you've said. I didn't put these words in your mouth. Every time Judy Greer has been in a movie we've covered, you talk about how much you don't like her in that movie. I just, I've always asked, why does she work so much? Why does she exist? <laughs> why must I deal with this? Well, you won't have to in Halloween Ends, because she's up at the mirror. Well, you never know. We ended with Lori getting stabbed in the stomach last movie, and she survived. True. But here, it does look like Karen dies. The way they flashed Jamie Lee Curtis as if she knows her daughter was killed. Right. Yeah. And it's a showdown moment. Yeah. Of like, now it's on. Like, okay, it's personal. Not that it wasn't personal before. You came after me, now you killed my daughter. You're going down, Michael Myers, is what part three is going to be. The the movie I thought we were going to have here of Jamie Lee and him facing off is probably going to be next movie. And yet, if it's not really about any of them, if it's Michael's really been driven by Judith and whatever happened in that bedroom, here's something I'm going to predict. I could be wrong, but the theme that I picked up on this is that people that get bullied end up becoming bullies. We've looked at Michael as a bully. Next movie, what do you think? He's the victim. He was sexually assaulted in this bedroom? Oh my god, Halloween 3, Me Too movement? No, please no. No, no, I, I mean, no, let's not be that crap. But I'm just saying, like, maybe the reason why he killed Judith was that she touched him. I don't know. It could be. Or maybe she let her boyfriend touch him or something. Oh boy, no, no. Please don't, don't try to make us sympathize with him. That You've made him the shape. You've made him the unstoppable killing machine that is a metaphor for things do not make it that he was touched it's headed there look at look at this movie and tell me it's not pointed in that direction if it is strong knock recommend for a movie they haven't made yet <laughs> we don't need to see how darth vader became darth vader we don't need to see this i disagree i've been saying this whole time how awful loomis was for calling him pure evil and not seeing his humanity if they can finally show us the humanity of the child and what he's been raging out against that will be brilliant so we saw that a bit in the rob zombies halloween we talked about that there. Yeah, they again, no sympathy in Rob Zombie movies. I can't feel for anybody in Rob Zombie movies. But yes, it was certainly about abuse and getting back at abusers. So Michael presumably kills Karen and then stares out the window. And we get a flash to Laurie Strode at the hospital, seeming to know like when twins know when their twin has been hurt, bringing it back to the twins. Is that what it is? 
I thought she was looking into the glass and seeing Michael, and Michael might be looking into the glass and seeing her. There you go. Okay. I mean, they're going for that metaphor because that's been, you know, the the symbolism of this movie is that you could either be looking outward or you could be looking introspectively, and maybe, you know, we'll find out. Again, you're telling me the script hasn't even been approved yet, so (laughs) they... Next Halloween, I'm thinking it won't be the rest of the night. My guess is the way that she ended that line is that she said something to the fact that he could come back next Halloween. Yeah. So I'm predicting we're done with 2018 and maybe in 2022 when we get Halloween ends, they're in 2022. That's what they've said. They said there will be a gap. Okay. All right. Well, you know why, guys? Because at this point of the night, it's November 1st. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Has to be Halloween. (laughs) They run out of literal time. Day of the Dead is a different franchise. Yeah, they can't, like, yeah, can't go there. No, it's, there's going to be a pause, but they've not said how long. But I have a feeling, you know, whatever Michael did when he got home, he's probably going to disappear for a year or so. Maybe it will be 2022. I did read them say that they were going to reference COVID in some way. So, like, maybe Michael, his mask wasn't Mm. the N19 mask. (laughs) (laughs) And so he went into hiding until it was safe. Oh, no! Oh, I think quarantined and chill. And think of all the people he spread it to, even without picking up a knife. So much fun. Amazing. The end here, though, I got to give a shout out. I do like the score again of this movie. We end with a pop song and the score during the end credits, but I like the score. Carpenter coming back again. He's been doing some interesting stuff. I've gotten a couple of his, dare I say, solo war albums. They're scores for movies he never made. <laughs> and I think he did a good job here. I'm glad they keep bringing him back. I don't know that there was enough of the original theme for my taste, though, especially at the end. I was glad that they tried new music. I think that it would have been easy to overplay the score we all love. And they did riffs on it that made it feel new. Just like this movie, it had uh, new moves to show us. Right. Like, I always complain about that with James Bond movies, right? And uh, here, I think they could have used it a little bit more, but I do like when they peppered it in. So, yeah, um, I agree, Arnie. Their music didn't certainly hurt anything. It didn't stand out to be bad, which is always a strong thing for music. I think if music can complement a movie or sometimes not even appear to be there, it helps more than if it's obvious and is overusive of very popular songs or theme. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Halloween Kills? Stuart. Yeah, a really impressive installment that actually fixes problems I was having with H4O. Namely, when I watched that first one, I'm like, the focus is not enough on Lori. Like, she goes and shoots him and he runs away. What is that about? Like, they got me. I believe the lie that it was all about Jamie Lee Curtis. And one of the many surprises here is that they dismiss their star and insist that coming home is about something else, and that this series will ultimately be about Michael and what has made him kill. I believe that they're going to finally supply a psychological reasoning for that other than he's just true evil. And that's completely exciting. And not the only thing that's really exciting about this movie. I think the attacks are brutal, well-staged. I think bringing back the old stars largely were a good idea. Not to mention the elderly people. That The, the other ones are also old. Uh, really adds something here. It makes it feel very different than any slasher movie I've ever seen before. And major props to Anthony Michael Hall. And again, like who thought a Halloween movie could be anchored by someone other than Jamie Lee Curtis? But she steps back for this one and lets other people, you know, step into the stage. And I think they don't let her down. 
course, the biggest gambit here, they want to make that big statement. They want to maybe elevate this horror. And, you know, in 2018, it felt like it was in theme of, of Me Too, like women getting revenge on their attackers. That was where we were at. Yes, justice, go get them. And now I feel like they're just as prescient with the idea that a couple years later, we're all tired of the constant tearing down, the destruction and the canceling and the fact that nobody appears to be innocent. This movie really ties into that. The idea that we're all monsters and that we may have been victimized, but it doesn't change the fact that we're going off and killing people. Yeah, whether you're Stop the Steal or Me Too, I think this movie says, take a breath, look at yourself, stop participating in a culture of self-destruction. It's incredibly amazing, powerful, explosive, gory, surprising, funny, a very solid recommend. Not only one of the best in this franchise, but I think in a year full of disappointing reboots and sequels, the best film I've seen, 2021? Arnie. I cannot be that effusive by any stretch of the imagination. I'm all for referencing our times in cinema. I feel that if this is trying to do that, though, it did a piss poor job of it with its Tommy Doyle subplot there. I do like, though, the expansion of the town in the expansion of the body count. I couldn't keep count, but I read the body count here is 28. That is massive for a slasher film. Absolutely massive. And if you've come for a slasher film, if you want some good deaths, some good gore, if you still read Fangoria, you guys know Fangoria is back. It's subscription only, but Fangoria returned. I want to get it. I really, I, I, I so at least want to see an issue in print or online. In print only. Oh, you subscribe yeah. and get a few issues a year. And oh. so, if you are a Fangoria reader like I used to be, or some people still are today, you can really enjoy the practical effects going on here. I'm sure they're CGI enhanced in certain moments, but you can feel the practicality and the old schoolness. And truthfully. When it comes to Freddy, Jason, and Michael, Michael's always been lower on my totem pole. But here, he rises above Jason when it comes to the inventiveness and the goriness and the brutality of the kills. I really do enjoy the slasher aspect of this film. What lets me down is the character aspect of this film. The strongest character that's been built up in the only two movies in this continuity is Laurie Strode, and now you're taking that away and giving me too many characters that are unable to be fully fleshed out. Yeah, they have nice character moments. I really liked when the caretaker and her husband were playing with the drone before Michael comes in and kills them, and I really like Big John and Little John before Michael comes in and kills them, but they're just these little moments, and meanwhile, there's this entire unruly mob that it's only at the very end when Michael gets to tear through them, and I get a little bit of satisfaction out of them being there. I didn't love the 2018 Halloween film. Let's remember that. I liked it. I thought it was a flawed film, but a good enough film. This one isn't as good as that, but it's enough for me to say it's a recommend. I feel like there's 30 minutes in the middle that drag, but the first 40 and the last 40 make up for it enough where, yeah, I had a good time the first time I watched it. Watching it twice in two days, man, the flaws of this film magnify the more I see them in close succession. So I won't be watching it again until Halloween ends, but yeah, I'll definitely give it a recommend today. 
And the flaws of this movie were crystal clear to me from my single viewing before watching it today. So I do agree with a lot of the things you guys are saying for the compliments of the movie. I certainly enjoyed the chances they took. I like that they gave us some better character moments than you usually get in horror movies, slasher movies, I should say, for when those people finally die, that it means something. The mob mentality stuff, I couldn't get past the whole, they're making very bad choices. And while I understand it's the mentality, I understand what they were going for and the references to modern day, and all of those things were crystal clear to me, the movie logic was very difficult to swallow because they're very much grounding themselves in a modern day, yet they're still making some piss poor choices. The mob getting it at the end of the movie makes a lot of sense for the movie we're watching, for a Michael Myers movie, I should say. But I have trouble being entertained by this movie. So, like, it's not a terrible movie. And it does have a lot of thematic things going on, which bravo for them for going for it. I just didn't care about the characters that they were asking me to care about. They did not have their biggest star in the movie do anything of value. Was that a problem? For you, Brock? It certainly was. I felt Laurie Strode was wasted here, but clearly they're setting her up for part three. So I question if they have a trilogy in mind. I'm seeing a lot of filler, if you will, for a trilogy. My go-to example, Attack of the Clones, is just basically a big waste of time if you have the Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith. Everything you want to have happen to Darth Vader happens in Revenge of the Sith. If they wrote those two scripts back-to-back and actually had him turn to Darth Vader in the middle of Attack of the Clones, then you would have much better movie and much more it makes much more sense. But here, it seems like they're biding time, making a trilogy out of what could have been a duology for the story that they want to tell. And I understand how prescient it is. I understand that it certainly fits into 2021, even though it was made in 2019. But... It seems to me for the story they're telling here with Laurie Strode and how it affected her in that last movie, and now we're seeing how it affected a whole bunch of people, which is great, but that's not the story. The story is Michael Myers and Laurie, and now we find out it's not about Laurie, which is, yes, Stuart, very intriguing, but we don't need to have the whole town have the same thing Laurie did. I kind of felt that it was just biding its time for a third movie. So I did not enjoy this movie, especially I enjoyed the last one, where the last one was an entertaining and good slasher movie with a lot of inventive kills. Here we had inventive kills. Here we have some interesting characters, uh, but it's a not recommend from me. I don't think it's a strong movie at all. I think it's all over the place. I think there's a lot of interesting ideas that are not really fully fleshed out for us to have a good movie here and I'm not surprised Arnie said it's not enjoyable the second time through. I was greatly impressed with how enjoyable Halloween from 2018 was on the repeat viewing. I actually enjoyed it a lot and re-watching it for this movie. I guess I stand alone then because I feel like this movie makes that movie better. I like that movie more now that I've seen this film. When I watch this movie again uh, next year when we're reviewing Halloween Ends... I'm hoping that the two movies back-to-back will work together for a third one and make Mm -hmm. it all come together. I really hope that's true. Yeah. But here, I'm also getting aspects of, say, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, although to a much lesser extent, in that they had to find things from that first movie to make a trilogy. Here, they didn't necessarily have to find things. They had plenty to pull from versus they had to make stuff up for Pirates of the Caribbean. But it kind of felt the same way as they're going in different directions here to make it bigger than it actually has to be, is why I bring that uh, parallel into it. I like the scope. I love that it's big. I love that this movie goes beyond Laurie. And I agree. I think 
Here's my prediction. I do think that there's a lot to wrestle with and there's just things that are going to piss people off. Give it some time. My prediction is whatever you feel about it now will change next year when you see it again. That's wonderful, Stuart, but I'm reviewing the movie now. And right now I'm giving it a not recommend because of that. I hear you. You're you're frustrated. And I think it's designed to be frustrating. You wanted a Halloween movie and they gave you straw dogs. That's a different thing. I'm not complaining they didn't give me what I want necessarily. I mean, there's an aspect of it. What I'm saying also is it can't stand on its own as an entertaining movie, period. That I will very much disagree. I'd love this movie start to finish. I'm going to actually put it at the top. This is my favorite Halloween movie. Wow. Wow. Good for you. Wow. It's right in the middle for me. You know, it's not as good as Rob Zombie's first, but better than Rob Zombie's second. Wow. You still think Rob Zombie made the best Halloween movie? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think the first Halloween movie is a classic. Of course. But cheesy. You know, but you can go back and admit that it's it's cheesy and old-fashioned in a way that this new movie has a vitality to it. It feels very much now. Sure. That movie feels then. This movie feels now. But it still works. And that's amazing. It still works. Yeah, I, I ain't hating on it. I like Halloween, the franchise. Best slasher franchise there is. I'll give you this much. It is the classic slasher franchise that has the best installments currently coming out. <laughs> Right, yeah. You know what, that was my prediction. My prediction was before we even would get a Halloween sequel, they'd all be back. All the old G slashers would, like, see the light of day. But, like, I guess Candyman did come back. And Texas Chainsaw, supposedly there's an old Leatherface chasing an old Sally, very much like this new reboot stuff that's going to come out on Netflix soon. But no no Jason, no Freddy. Still all tied up in licensing rights. So until they can all agree to play nice and share money, nothing. And did I get this right? Pinhead's coming back as a woman? Yes, as a trans woman. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's very now as well. So we'll see. It's very Hellraiser, though. They always went. (laughs) Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Changing your body. They've been doing that long before 2022, whenever that comes out. And David Gordon Green, it should be said, he's got to hurry up and make Halloween in because I guess they've given him the reins to an Exorcist trilogy. And that will be his next next task, like some ridiculous sum of like $400 million to make three Exorcist movies. Wow. So we can see that obscure priest who was in the church yeah. come back and have a huge uh, reason why the uh, the demons keep coming back to this town. So when the three of us finish reviewing these movies, we'll be able to come back together and review new Exorcist film. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. If, if they're done as well as these these Halloween movies, if David Gordon Green can keep it up, I'm game. In the meantime, we're going back to a place that, I don't know, everyone was afraid to after David Lynch lost a lot of money in 1984. Dune. I can't say I'm excited for this, but I'm interested. The director is one that I think makes unique projects and you certainly would have to work hard to outdo the visuals of lynch but you wouldn't have to work that hard to beat the story of lynch hell sci-fi's original miniseries told the story better read the book i think everyone would wish you'd started with the book the book is the the moby dick it's the white whale everyone is chased and no one is has totally gotten right believe it or not the sci-fi channel movie also not good. But uh, I have some affection for Lynch's vision, if not the coherence of the story. And yeah, I'm hoping for good things. I think it will be unique. And in the meantime, Brock, I know that you shared with your kids Quiet Place. Have you shown mm-hmm. them Quiet Place Part 2? 
Not yet, but the first one was so successful experiment. And the cool thing about watching A Quiet Place 2 with her and then listening to your show about it afterwards will be none of us have seen A Quiet Place 2. So we'll be able to Mm. experience the first scary movie for the first time together. It'll be kind of fun, right? So looking forward to that very, very much and looking forward to telling you guys all about it while listening to the podcast. Yeah, this Friday for Platinum Donors, you'll get that show and, and then on to Bird Box a few weeks later. And remember, you can help us out by getting these shows either through our Patreon pledge page, our Podbean pledge page at the Platinum level, which through those is 50 or more, but it also gets you all the Tom Cruise shows, all the Ghostbusters shows, all the Candyman shows, all the Don't Breathe, The Strangers, You're Next, and coming soon the Paranormal Activity series, or you can make a direct pledge to us via PayPal. Head to the all-new, all-pretty, nowplayingpodcast.com website, and you can donate to us, and we have greatly improved the interface, which you get these donation podcasts back. So hopefully you're going to find it a much smoother experience. If you've donated to us in the past, you're going to have a much easier time with it now. So thank you all for your support. And I got to tell you, Arnie, going back to find our 2018 Halloween review for this podcast, going to the new Now Playing website was such a joy to be able to, to find it in this new beautiful website. It was so easy to find and locate. So the new Now Playing website, as well as a new patron page, is something to behold. If you haven't seen it soon, go to nowplayingpodcast.com and check it out. I look forward to coming back and talking movies with you guys soon. I don't know the next time I'll be back, but whatever that is, I'm already looking forward to it because these last two weeks talking to you, Bond first and now Michael Myers has been an absolute joy. We'll see you guys next Halloween. But until we talk Michael Myers, we'll talk to you soon, folks. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to the other installments as well as hundreds of other horror movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Find reviews of Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trek, Leprechaun, The Avengers, and more. Now Playing Podcast is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Venganza Media is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music used in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed, and the Now Playing trademark may not be used without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Today we're talking about... I thought you'd want some backup. I thank you. I appreciate that. Mm. Uh, uh, How kind of you. Um. (laughs) I bet you can't get through it. (laughs) All right, let's do this. You want to challenge me? (laughs) I mean, we'll see. You're a professional. Let's do it. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Today we're talking about Halloween Kills, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, Will Patton. 
programming note really quick, Arnie. Why don't you say Tommy Doyle? I think you said Tommy Boyle. Okay, I'll your thing, Just that. in case I'm right. Yes, Danny uh, Boyle is in this? And Arnie, you you know, you were saying that, like, why would Dan- well, Danny Boyle? No, I'm doing it. Why would Tommy Doyle, right? Yes. Yeah, Tommy yes, Doyle. I'm not- Danny Boyle. Why would Danny Boyle do this? <laughs> why are all these British gangsters in this movie all of a sudden? <laughs> they get knocked down and they get up again. That's why. <laughs> yeah. 